0: I used to joke with a a coworker, like we used to track the the QAnon movement kind of in 2017, 2018 when it was was popping up. And I used to joke that QAnon would be the thing that brought the world down. Um, It's sort of just a, a shady conspiracy theory that, Um, makes no real claims. I mean, definitely claims there's deep state and stuff like that, but, um, you know, has a lot of room for whatever you believe if you want to, like, be a believer in it. And so I think that attacking the other side by weaponizing things like QAnon that are out there, like existing conspiracy theories and saying, uh, you know, I don't, let's say the Yankees are trying to take down, uh, the Yankees are the deep state, maybe you're the Red Sox or the Yankees are trying to take down the system, whatever it may be. But weaponization of these existing conspiracy theories, I think is something that's definitely going to happen is already happening.
1: Dirty digital politics is a fact of life all over the world now. Democracies are gonna have to learn how to live with it. One thing that could help US voters understand this murky world is to learn about the kinds of tactics being used in other countries. Fortunately, that's what Nick Monaco does. He's the research director of the Digital Intelligence Lab at the Institute for the Future, and he's been studying digital disinformation for a long time. He's just co-authored a new report about Taiwan's recent election, which saw Chinese cyber armies hired for as little as $330 a month work furiously to help a candidate favored by the Chinese Communist Party. There are accusations of brainwashing and of unleashing a virus on democracy. Nick will explain and offer a cautionary tale for the homestretch of America's 2020 presidential race. So this new report, which I was really excited to talk to you about because it's not about the U.S. election, so I feel like we can be a little bit more free in the language that we use, and partisan uh, clamoring won't actually get in the way of our discussion. But in order to get there, could you please set the stage for the situation in Taiwan right now for people who are unaware of what the political situation is there?
0: Sure. I mean, um, basically, the report we released um, focused on kind of the last six months Uh, or really the last year of kind of what the social media and information ecosystem looked like in Taiwan. So Taiwan is uh, basically a de facto uh, independent state. It functions as a democracy, uh, but has a common history that's kind of complex with uh, mainland China uh, or the People's Republic of China uh, right across what's called the Taiwan Strait, like a narrow body of water between the two. Taiwan's an island off the coast of China. Um, so essentially like Taiwan functions as an independent state is, uh, one of the freest societies in Asia has really high press freedom ratings, stuff like that. Um, but due to kind of complex history, China claims that Taiwan is part of its territory. Um, and, uh, basically this is, uh, uh uh, piece of land, an issue that means a lot to the, the Chinese Communist Party, the ruling party in China, and to mainland Chinese themselves. Um, so if you ask any normal, uh, kind of regular Chinese citizen, they're apt to tell you that, yeah, Ch- Taiwan is part of China. Um, so that has a, a big effect on the, the island's politics, uh, on national politics and presidential elections in particular, like Taiwan had in January of 2020. And basically, we were just diving into the Uh, social media ecosystem to see, you know, what signs we could find of disinformation in Taiwan and what it looked like and whether any of it was coming from mainland China. So that's kind of the report in a nutshell.
1: Um, So specifically this election uh, described the situation for me. There, There was an incumbent running and the Chinese Communist Party had an interest in the incumbent losing. So set up that for me.
0: For sure, yeah. So there is um, basically there are two main parties in Taiwan. There's the Democratic Progressive Party, uh, the DPP as they're called, and that's kind of the left wing, more more pro-independence party, um, and more just like Taiwan is its own nation kind of party. Um, formally declaring independence is kind of a complex issue. So that's not like formally part of the platform or anything. Then on the other side, you have uh, the KMT, the Nationalist Party. And um, they kind of had sort of a, a Trumpian candidate this year, a guy named Han kuo yu who um, you know, was running and saying all kinds of interesting stuff, didn't have much of a platform, sort of was just saying, you know, I'm going to um, make Taiwan rich again and, and kind of uh, just sort of a, a lot of what we've seen around the world in terms of right wing sort of nebulous populist candidates. Uh, And basically, yeah, he was uh, more pro-China than the ruling incumbent DPP president, Tsai ing wen and basically was, um, you know, a lot of people thought this was an election that was probable to be targeted by mainland China for that reason. Uh, So that's kind of the the backdrop of the election. So basically, um, you know, Hong Kong until recently was uh, protesting uh, and sort of uh, felt their freedoms were at threat from mainland China, and quite rightfully so. Um, and was targeted with disinformation. So in August 2019 Facebook and Twitter for the first time said we're seeing disinformation from the Chinese government uh, Targeting the Hong Kong protests and we're in Twitter's case releasing data uh, to let people analyze this stuff uh, so very, you know, kind of a, a Seminal moment and kind of like a historic moment in that the Chinese government was found on social media platforms targeting the Hong Kong protests and this really had an impact on Taiwan kind of Uh, public opinion on, you know, how close to China to be, how close Chinese and Taiwanese relations should be uh, started really shifting in the direction of, you know, Taiwan should be um, as independent as possible and, you know, kind of put a distance with mainland China because we might be targeted with this stuff, too. The situation in
1: Hong Kong scares people in Taiwan,
0: for sure. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's a kind of a visceral uh, relating that Taiwanese, Taiwanese people do to Hong Kong um, in that regard. So yeah, that's sort of like a lot of the context for, um, for the election in January.
1: So then there's this pro-Trump, I'm sorry, then there's this pro-China candidate and you investigate the election for six months and you find that there's an awful lot of evidence that the Chinese Communist Party got involved in social media and and tried to tip the scales in favor of the pro-Chinese candidate, right? How, How did they do that?
0: Well, to be, a, to be a researcher about it, I'll uh, nitpick a little bit. Like, we don't formally attribute anything to the Chinese Communist Party in the report. Um, but what we did find in terms of election uh, disinformation or coordinated promotion uh, of manipulative information during the election was that there were content farms uh, headquartered in Malaysia that were promoting kind of news stories that were promoting uh, Han Guoyu and sort of criticizing the current incumbent and, you know, Uh, making her look bad, essentially not promoting her re-election. So content farms are sort of just networks of websites uh, that exist in Taiwan and kind of in the Chinese-speaking swath of the internet. And they're basically mirrors of each other. You can think of like two dozen websites that all have the same landing page and promote the same stories, uh, but have different domain names. And they promote, they produce stories at a crazy rate, a, a high volume of stories, and sometimes often they will steal stories from other uh news websites and not attribute them and change a headline or change a couple sentences in the story they often promote disinformation so they're they're pretty sketchy um but they're open to authorship from anyone in a lot of cases and in particular in the case of uh the cheat sheet news network the um the network we zoomed in on during the taiwanese election basically this was A content farm platform that's owned by a guy in Malaysia that allows anyone to author articles. And what we saw was a lot of the articles that were, you know, promoting Han Guoyu, this KMT candidate and criticizing the current president in Taiwan were um, showed showed signs, excuse me, of Chinese authorship. So definitely we're coming from mainland China, definitely we're aligned with the CCP worldview. I'm interested in specifics, because I think
1: a lot of people don't really believe that these fake accounts can do very much. So how did they attack the incumbent? For example, I believe they attacked um, PhD credentials, for example, how did that work?
0: Yeah, so this was really interesting, Um, both before the election, but especially after the election, there were uh, campaigns targeting the president and claiming that her PhD was fake, essentially her dissertation was fake and the whole thing um, was fraudulent, just a way for her to boost her credentials. So this is a rumor that's been around really for the past year in Taiwan, but um, after the election in particular saw a coordinated promotion from a really small network of accounts. Um, and actually this, this looked to be a domestic campaign, so like a Taiwanese campaign of people who just don't like the president. Uh, but what was interesting about it that I've really never seen before is a small network of accounts on Facebook and Twitter were promoting a, a petition to the U.S. government actually that was calling on the U.S. government on weedthepeople.org, their official petition website, um, to investigate the Taiwanese president and investigate her Ph.D. in particular, uh, because it was allegedly fake. And the petition itself alleges she, like, manipulated the vote in January 2020. Um, but what's even more interesting is that this um, calls to sign this petition and disinformation about Tsai one wen uh, kind of appeared in immigrant newspapers in the States as well and called on people to... Um, you know sign this petition and investigate Tsai ing PhD and whether it was you know real or not um, and the Facebook campaign for this petition gathered something like 47,000 likes and the petition itself got 42,000 signatures which um, was far from what it needed to actually garner a response from the U.S. government but all the same was quite interesting and again that's a, a tactic and a strategy I've never seen to actually Formally call on a foreign government to get involved in a domestic affair uh, that's based in that is disinformation is um, it's very strange. It's something I've never seen before. So that was crazy.
1: So one of the things that always confuses me about these stories, and so when Twitter announces it's taking down fake accounts inauthentic authentic accounts, usually it says something like, "We we identified 109 accounts." It always sounds so small in scale but then I read a report like yours or other news stories and it says, you know, this was shared five million times, you know, so how does something that seems so small when it's announced by Twitter or Facebook become actually so large?
0: Right, Um, it's a really good question. I think impact, honestly, is one of the toughest questions in the disinformation research field right now, right? People want to know what effect does this information have on behavior? Uh, and that's really difficult to to measure and quantify in a lot of ways. Um, to answer your question, first, like, a small amount of accounts, if it produces, uh, you know, viral content, can, can reach a lot of people. I think this is pretty intuitive for people, right? Like, uh, and this happens organically as well. If someone, uh, you know, produces a meme that's really funny, you know, it could get retweeted, who knows, tens of thousands of times. Uh, and that's just content produced by one person. So if you extend that to... Uh, offices, let's say government offices that do this stuff professionally, who are employed to produce viral content that spreads message, uh, then a couple hundred accounts can really have a strong effect. I think another factor there with the social media companies is there's only so much we know about their attribution process, right? Like it is a one-way mirror in a sense, like they tell us what they took down and what they attribute it to what they don't tell us is kind of where they draw the line. This could be a big network. I mean, picture like a a, a circle that's filled with um, little dots, all of which represent accounts, you know. Um, It could just be a smaller circle, concentric circle, within the center of a bigger circle of accounts. So a smaller network of accounts, let's say. This is kind of a sketchy metaphor. Um, (laughs) But it could be that a larger amount of accounts were part of this operation, but, you know, distance enough from uh, the government that they warrant being disclosed later on or don't warrant being disclosed at all. Uh, there's a lot of questions that remain still when there are, um, you know, deplatforming platforming uh, of uh, government information operations on Twitter and Facebook. So that I, I read sense. it does.
1: There, there are a lot of um, I, things in your, your report that hit me right between the eyes. Uh, I'm going to go through them with you. One of them is that at least in Taiwan, you could hire an internet army um, for $330 a month. I'm stunned that it's that cheap, $330 a month you can run a campaign like this.
0: Yeah, so that's a really interesting scenario. And that is something that um, I won't say is unique to Taiwan, but is certainly a cultural uh, aspect of Taiwan. Uh, And in particular, one of the people we interviewed for the report, um, kind of an expert in in disinformation in Taiwan and cross-strait relations, kind of pointed out that at this point, they are called cyber armies or internet armies in Chinese. Um, what they really are, are just people being paid a small amount of money to comment, like positive comments on one candidate or uh, criticize another candidate in comments. So like pretty cheap manual operations. Um, there's uh, not a lot of like bots or sophistication to these, um, but essentially, you know, campaigns hiring people to promote good news and good comments about them. Uh, and this is something that exists in Taiwan. Again, it's called Cyber Armies. And yeah, it's super cheap. One of the people we interviewed for the report, uh, several of them actually said, like, this is kind of just a mainstay of Taiwanese politics at this point. This is something that has, uh, for better or worse, and probably for worse, become sort of part of the standard campaigning apparatus. That's not to say that all the parties have been caught uh, using Cyber Armies, but they, um, it's, it's sort of... Um, accepted right now that it's part of the it's a tool in the digital campaigning apparatus that's used a lot around across the board and maybe some of this is
1: boasting but it it strikes me as, as um, it, it, it hits me as truthful um, the average click-through rate for some of their Facebook ads uh, well the average click-through rate for Facebook ads in general is 2% but one of these companies claimed that their click-through rate was 20% in other words one in five people will push a like or spend time to go watch an ad This kind of precision isn't precision marketing. It's brainwashing, is what the report says. Brainwashing.
0: Yeah, so that's a direct quote. Um, uh, One of the great journalists in Taiwan is a guy named Jason Leo. He works for an organization called The Reporter. Um, And The Reporter has done a lot of great reporting on uh, Chinese disinformation in Taiwan, but also the domestic um, kind of disinformation market that exists in Taiwan. And this isn't only for political purposes. You can hire sort of disinformation companies or PR companies to promote your business products if you want uh, or help you sell noodles or makeup or whatever it may be. And, and it's kind of common practice for a lot of places in Taiwan. Um, the quote you're referring to is from a guy who works at a company called QSearch, which is a big data analytics firm um, that's been used by several different parties and politicians in Taiwan to help them campaign. Uh, and, and what I think is interesting about that company and this quote is, You know, I I try to always point out that, like, what's manipulative uh, kind of feels against the rules, digital campaigning behavior really is just part of digital politics at this point, like the the normal election apparatus. Like if we don't define where the line is between fair digital campaigning uh, and manipulative digital practices, then um, then we can just expect this all to become par for the course and really normal uh digital electioneering until until regulation comes to define you know what is and isn't fair play
1: we're racing to the bottom here and we haven't gotten to the bottom yet and and that's that leads directly to the next quote that i picked up from the report i often tell people who will listen that i think democracy has been hacked right now and that's what this feels like to me um and here's the quote we feel we're testing this is from a company that does this work. We feel we're testing where the democratic system's
0: weak points are. We're a virus. Right. So, I mean, interesting you bring that quote up too. Um, that's a, another quote from, direct quote from one of the other fa- co-founders of Q-Search. Um, he has since, his name is Roger Dew, uh, D-O is his last name. He has since founded his own company, I think called Autopolitik, that helps politicians all around Southeast Asia in campaigns with big data analytics and, and kind of suggesting um, how they run their campaigns in order to win. And this is kind of, you know, something that's a real time analysis, like a, a politician will make a speech, a candidate will make a speech. Um, this company will kind of monitor in real time the social media response. And based on that, kind of tell the candidate, here's how you should tailor your message or, you know, um, what things you should focus on. Uh, so that you get a, a better response and, you know, a more positive response from the people. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think this is really interesting and, and his philosophy on why he does this. I mean, he he views this as something that strengthens democracy overall, um, something that is a virus for sure and challenges um, kind of central parts of democratic infrastructure. Uh, but uh, seems to hope if we take him at his word that this will uh, strengthen the democracies in which he's working. I think you could you could fall on either side of that argument for sure, and some of this seems to be dubious practice. But um, he's is
1: penetration be, testing democracy, hoping that will yeah, fix it. On
0: exactly, exactly, that's like a really great way of thinking about it. Like, if the system can't hold up to these at these weak points, then maybe it wasn't uh, a strong democracy at all. I think is kind of his point, point. Um, and I think there's a lot to criticize about that, and I think there's a lot of um, I think it does speak to my point that, like, until we define in, in a regulatory sense, really, what's fair practice, we can just expect the most exploitative, um, you know, data intensive techniques to be used as, as fair game. And that's around the world. That's not just in Taiwan or Southeast Asia. I mean, Cambridge Analytica is kind of uh, the strongest example of that, I think, as well. Okay, so just
1: to make this tangible for a U.S. audience, since you've <laughs> You've witnessed this election and you've seen all of these, I'm going to call them dirty digital tactics. Sure. I don't don't care if people are offended by that name. Um, (laughs) Can you conjure up for me, let's say it's October 3rd, 2020 in the U.S., 30 days before, um, one month before the election. What kind of things, if you were to translate what you saw in Taiwan, what kind of things, it doesn't even have to be party specific, will we see in the U.S. that might look just like what happened in Taiwan?
0: Well, I think one thing we can uh, certainly expect to happen is, um, you know, a a rehash of very invasive data gathering techniques that are used to micro target or um, send specific messages to specific social groups or demographics or whatever it may be. Um, I mean, we knew this happened in 2016. There was some uproar about Cambridge Analytica. But uh, several people from that firm and from Bell Pottinger, uh, another kind of shady PR firm in the UK uh, were very overt about the fact that they were starting a new company called Emer Data, um, which was, uh, they were unapologetic about, was, was aiming to do the same thing, but use get even more intensive data and personalized data, including like search histories from Google and web browsing histories and use those in elections to target people. So uh, I think, again, just a, an intensified um, personalized messaging campaign is definitely going to be happening. Now, since you're probably like within the bubble that's being targeted for whatever message you're reading, it's kind of tough to know that's going on. But again, with an absence of regulation prohibiting those things and saying they're not, uh, not only not fair, but not legal, um, every campaign wants to get its edge, right? So we can definitely expect that to um, to happen.
1: Uh, Maybe here's a fun way to get at the conversation without getting you in trouble with either U.S. political party. Let's say it's, (laughs) it's the Yankees are running against the Red Sox in November. You know, what kind of things might we expect a digital campaign for the Red Sox to say about the Yankees? Or how might they attack the Yankees candidacy?
0: Yeah, I mean, I I think that um, for sure, I I used to joke with a, a co-worker, like we used to track the, the QAnon movement kind of in 2017, 2018, when it Um, was was popping up. And I used to joke that QAnon would be the thing that brought the world down. Um, It's sort of just a a shady conspiracy theory that um, makes no real claims. I mean, definitely claims there's deep state and stuff like that. But, um, you know, has a lot of room for whatever you believe if you want to, like, be a believer in it. And so I think that Attacking the other side by weaponizing things like QAnon that are out there, like existing conspiracy theories and saying, uh, you know, I don't, let's say the Yankees are trying to take down, uh, the Yankees are the deep state, maybe you're the Red Sox or the Yankees are trying to take down the system, whatever it may be. But weaponization of these existing conspiracy theories, I think is something that's definitely going to happen and is already happening. Um, beyond that, it's just, it's going to be an ugly election, right? It's quite clear, uh, even at this point that, you um, uh, divisive messages, false messages, um, are going to be spread as much as possible. And Facebook and Twitter are starting to do more than they were doing. I think they're being put in a place where they their principles are really being challenged in terms of do we um, do we really want to not do anything at all. Uh, so I, I think that they're kind of on the defensive in that sense. It's quite interesting to see like Facebook has begun taking more action than um Than we would have expected them to three months ago based on like Zuckerberg's speech at Georgetown or whatever it may be. Um, So it's it's going to get pretty ugly, I think, before November.
1: Is there any reason for hope? I mean, we knew about this four years ago, at least. Uh, Haven't we made things better in some in some
0: ways? Yeah, I mean, I think that the places where i get hope um the you know the social media companies uh, and the tech industry is like much more involved in the problem than they were before much more invested in it which is something that um wasn't guaranteed or even probable 5 years ago you know when i started this work in 2015 no one was really listening to us sounding the alarm bells even um, yeah, including whoever it may be, but especially social media companies. Uh, and at this point, that's that's definitely changed. Um, so that's cause for optimism. On the government side, I mean, it's been disappointing that there hasn't been uh, regulation, uh, not only about like political ads, but about digital campaigning generally, you know. Um, so that's, uh, that's kind of less optimistic of a spot. I think, like, ideally, both sectors would have, would have taken action. But um, it seems like the private sector is kind of leading for the time being. Uh, you know, people are aware of the problem. People are aware of the disinformation problem in a way that they were not four years ago. So that's um, also cause for optimism. And there have been some really interesting analyses, like Alina Polyakova, um, who I think now is at SIPA, uh, kind of a disinformation expert in, like, the Russia-Ukraine region, wrote a piece in, uh, recently that was really interesting, saying, like, you know, maybe maybe Russia won't try the same playbook in the 2020 election for these reasons. Um, so, you know, maybe we'll get lucky in that regard, and, and Russia won't won't try the same stuff. But um, optimism is a tough one in, in the lead-up to this election, I think.
1: Maybe we'll get lucky. I, I don't know if that's my favorite way to plan for the future but that's no. where we are right now yeah i do no, no.
0: Yeah. governmental side i think that's the position we've been put in
1: yeah yeah nick monaco director of digital the digital intelligence lab at the institute for the future i really appreciate your time and i encourage anybody to go read the report the link to it will be in the show notes so thank you nick
0: thanks bob